Our text for this third Sunday in the season of Advent, our focus on the prologue of John's Gospel, the incarnation of Christ, the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us, our focus from John chapter 1, verses 9 to 13. As I said a couple of weeks ago when I preached The Gospels of Matthew and Luke provide for us all of those wonderful and beloved details of Christmas, all the facts of Christmas. Matthew, in his Gospel, he's the one who tells us all about the journey of the wise men and their seeking of the Christ child sometime after his birth. And Luke, of course, records for us those wonderful details and the facts of the shepherds who were guarding their flocks at night and how the angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were sore afraid, filled with a great fear. And Matthew, or rather Luke, tells us all about Mary and Joseph and the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And we'll get to all those details of Christmas again this Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. John doesn't give us any of that, doesn't mention any of the details of Christmas, the facts of Christmas. Rather, John is pulling back the veil and is focusing on the deeper meaning of Christmas. And that's what we see here in our text for today, verses 9 to 13. We again see the meaning of Christmas. And here we even see something of the the power of Christmas, of that first advent of Christ into the world, the power that Christmas has to uplift us, the power that it has to help us in our times of doubting or our times where our faith feels rather weak or our mistrusting of God at times, our struggle at times to believe, Christmas has the power to transform. Two things, actually, that we see here, two things that John is showing us in these verses. First of all, John is showing us the real reason, the deeper reason why at times we might struggle to believe And then secondly, he's showing us how and why Christmas is the solution to that struggle. First of all, the deeper reason, the real reason why we might at times struggle to believe and the real reason why some people don't believe at all. And secondly, how Christmas itself is the solution to that struggle. So first of all, What is John showing us here about the the real reason, the deeper reason why at times you and I, even though we might be Christians here in the room, might struggle in our belief, and the real reason why some people fail and find it difficult to believe at all? What's the real reason? Well, again, John writes, verse 9, the true light, this is how he's describing Christ, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. John here is saying, the world did not know Christ, the true light, did not know him. It means they did not welcome him. They did not want him. They did not, therefore, believe in him. 
Now again, the question is why? Why this barrier to knowing him or believing or trusting in him? And I would submit to you that the barrier and the real reason, it is not simply an intellectual problem. It's not simply a matter that there isn't enough evidence or enough proofs of Christ. I think sometimes we might think, even in times of our own weakness of faith, or if you're here today or you're watching here and joining us through our video stream here this morning, uh, sometimes we think, you know, whether we're Christians or we're not Christians, wherever we might be in our belief, that if only I had more data, if there was more proof, absolute proof, then, then I wouldn't doubt at all, and I wouldn't be afraid ever again, and I could just believe these things. Boy, wouldn't that have been great to have been there during the time of Christ himself, but remember... All of the crowds of people who followed Christ for the three years of his public ministry. Crowds, thousands upon thousands of people who were there when he fed 5,000 people miraculously. Or when he healed the blind man or gave healing to the deaf, the lame that could walk. Even raised dead people from the grave back to life again. There were thousands of people who were the eyewitnesses of these wonderful miracles of Christ. And you would say, oh, if I was there, I would have such a strong and amazing faith. Or some of you who maybe are not Christians or you are skeptics, you might say, then I would believe. And yet there were thousands of people who did not believe, even then, despite all of that evidence. And even the disciples themselves struggled to believe. You know, there is a really interesting aside at the very, very end of Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 28. This is after the death of Christ, after the resurrection of Christ. It's after Jesus, after his resurrection, Luke tells us that he was with his disciples for a period of how long? 40 days, giving them, quote, many convincing proofs that he was alive for 40 days. Can you imagine? 40 days with the resurrected Christ, and for each of those 40 days, he's giving us, giving you a convincing proof that he is real and he was alive. Despite all of that, listen to what it says here. Jesus has told his disciples to meet him in Galilee on the mountain. He's about to ascend back into heaven, and it says, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but it says, some doubted. Can you imagine? Three years with Jesus, they saw him walking on water. They saw him calm a raging storm. They saw him raise people from the dead. They saw him die, and then they were with him alive again for 40 days. Thomas, put your hand uh, in my nails, uh, marks in my hand. Put your hand in the wound in my side. 40 days, giving them many convincing proofs. Some doubted. I submit to you it is not merely an intellectual problem or an intellectual barrier. It's not just about having more data or proof or evidence. There's something else going on within the hearts of humanity, within our own hearts. Going back to John's gospel, again, verse 9, he describes Jesus as, quote, the true light the true light 
Back up in verse 5 of the prologue of the first chapter of John's gospel, he says that the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So there is the light of the world, that is Jesus Christ, God and human flesh, but in the world there is what? There is darkness. And the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness is there. Now what is this darkness? Well, this darkness is the darkness which hangs over the entire world. This darkness is an innate hostility towards God, a mistrusting of God, and it is a darkness that's not simply sort of in the world, but this darkness is in the world because this darkness is within us. Within you, within me. The darkness is in the world because the darkness is within the hearts and the souls of human beings that God had made in his image. Where does this dark, what is this darkness? Well, let's go back, Genesis chapter 3. The description of humanity's rebellion against God when this darkness came into the world, into our hearts. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good. And evil. Now, what is Satan, your enemy, God's enemy, saying through the form of the serpent? He's saying this God, no, you're not going to die. You think you can trust God? God knows that when you eat of that fruit, your eyes are going to be opened and you are going to be like Him. You're going to be just like God. You think God wants that? God wants to keep you down. God wants to keep you repressed. God doesn't want you to maximize your potential. God wants you to keep you under His sum. You need to chart your own course. You need to go your own way. You need to get away from Him. Does God really care about you? Why would God do this? Do you think God really loves you? See, it's that lie which is the darkness. The darkness is the lie of Satan, the lie of sin. That is, believe it or not, and it might be buried deep, but it's within all of us, the lie that says you can't trust him. Does God really love you? Does God really care about you? Go your own way. You need to be in control of your own life. You need to be in control. You know, Paul even says in Romans chapter 5, verse 10, he says that in our nature we are, quote, enemies of God. That there is something within us as human beings, this darkness, this lie, which produces a hostility between us and God, a, 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 at times inability to trust in him. He said, but pastor... I don't have any hostility in my heart towards God. I don't have this lie in my I know that God loves me. Yes, you do, but no, you don't. 
It's buried deep. Well, I don't have any of that in me. Let me ask you, diagnostic question. Have you ever worried in your life? Have you ever had stress or anxiety or fear? If you have, this is the reason why. To worry is to say this, God, I know how my life should go. I know, I know what I want. I'm afraid maybe you're not gonna give me what I want and I don't completely trust that things are gonna unfold the way that I want things to unfold and indeed I don't exactly trust that you're working through all things for my good. That's what worry is. Next question. Do you really believe, not just here but in, your, in here in your heart, do you really believe that you could lose everything in your life, but as long as you have Jesus, you're gonna be perfectly happy and content. Do you, do you really think that could be true of you? The old adage that says you never know that God is all that you need until God is all that you have. Do you really believe that? That you can lose everything in your life, but give me Jesus and that's all I need? Well, I mean, I know I want Jesus, and that's important, but I'd like to have my nice home, and I'd like to have my retirement, and I would like to have nice vacations, and I would like to have someone to love me, and I would like to have maybe people who respect me or think well of me and a good name, and I certainly would like my health. There is a lie buried deep. There is a darkness rises up. Do you, does God really love you and care about you? You got to be in control. You take control. And this is, we think of this as almost like a non-religious thing to do, right? We want to be in control. Our, our sinful nature, the darkness, the lie within us causes us to push God away, to rebel against God, and to turn away from him. That's the non-religious way that this unfolds itself. But there's also a very, very religious way in which we try to stay in control as well. There's actually a very religious way in which that darkness within us bubbles up to the surface. Look at what it says in verse 11. He, that is Christ, the light of the world, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Of course, that's the Jewish people. This is speaking of the most, perhaps the most religious people in the history of the world and the religious leaders and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the chief priests and the scribes and all of these wonderful, absolutely devoted religious men of the day who absolutely rejected Christ and in fact worked with the Roman government to have him crucified. There was a non-religious way in which we try to stay in control and it's turning away from God, but there is a religious way where we try to stay in control and that mistrust and that darkness raises up. The non-religious way is about running away from God, but the religious way is trying to manipulate God. 
would submit to you that the reason why humanity created the religions of the world apart from the truth in Christ is that religion is a way of human beings trying to be in control, trying to get what they want out of God and trying to manipulate God. It's a business transaction, quid pro quo, this for that, God, I scratch your back, you scratch my back. If I obey these commands, then God should bless me. If I pray these certain prayers, then I'll get these blessings. If I do these religious things, do you remember the story, those of you who grew up in the church in Sunday school, do you remember Sunday school you learned about the golden calf? And Moses and Aaron. So this is Exodus chapter 32. And Moses and Aaron, God has used them to lead God's people out of slavery in Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea, into the Sinai wilderness. So they're at Mount Sinai. Moses has gone to the top of the mountain to get the Ten Commandments and all of the holy law of God, but he's been up there for a while. And it says this, Exodus 32, verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, in other words, they're getting nervous. Can we try? I mean, I know this Yahweh, Lord God, got us out of Egypt, but can we really believe him? See, there's that darkness, there's that lie rearing up. When Moses delayed, okay, what's going on up there? It says, when Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron, Moses' brother, and said to him, make us gods who shall go before us. It was Yahweh who was going before them and leading the way. It was the Lord, the great I am. Now they say, make us gods. So they take rings, they take jewelry, all the gold that they have, they put it in a pile, they melt it down, and they put it into a cask, and they form, it says, a golden calf. But who is this golden calf? And what God, what deity is this golden calf? Have you wondered that? Well, it says, they said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Wait a second, I thought that was Yahweh, the Lord, who brought them out of Egypt. Now it's the golden calf. And it says, when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord capital L, capital O, capital O, capital D, which means Yahweh, a feast to Yahweh before the golden calf. The golden calf was their attempt to take the great I am and bring him literally down to earth so that they could control, so that they could manipulate, so that they could scratch the golden calf. Yahweh's back, he could scratch their black. It was not about relationship, of course. It was about the fear, the mistrust, the darkness, the lie of sin in their hearts. and wanting to be in control. How do you do that? In a non-religious way of turning away from him? How do you do that? In a religious way. In your prayers. Or in your worship. See, John here, first of all, is showing us the deeper reason, the real reason why we sometimes struggle to believe and to trust, and why some people don't believe at all. It's not just intellectual, there's a darkness. There's something in us that just fundamentally doesn't always trust God or want God. That's the first thing that he shows us. But then secondly, he's showing us here how Christmas is the solution to that struggle. 
Look at what it says here, verse 12. He says, his own people did not receive him, verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but born of God. He says that those who received him, somehow received him, he gave the right to become children of God. What does it mean to be a child of God, us collectively to be children of God? To be a child of God means you're an heir and a co-heir of his kingdom. It means you have forgiveness, you have acceptance. It means you are the the delight of God's heart. It means that all of the wonderful promises of the word of God are true for you you. It's everlasting life with one another and with him forevermore. It's who you are. You look in the mirror. I am a child of God. I don't have to be a slave to fear. It means all these things. But what does it mean to be a child? To be a child is to be radically, overwhelmingly, utterly dependent, helpless, trusting before God. I watched the movie Home Alone with my daughter Amelia for the first time, I think, since I saw it in the theater all those years ago, Home Alone. What a fun movie. If you've not seen Home Alone, go watch Home Alone. It's a fun movie. It's a fun movie because it is absurd. It is a seven-year-old boy who has left home alone for almost a week, and he goes grocery shopping, and he fixes his meals, and he does the laundry, and he takes care of the house, and he drives away the robbers, and he just, he doesn't need anyone or he need anything, and that's the humor, and that's the fun, because it's absolutely absurd, because we know as children, especially as very little ones, we are totally dependent. totally dependent. And God is saying, you can become that. Do you want to become that? I don't want to be dependent on anyone. I'm in control. Ooh, okay, there's the old darkness. To be a child, resting in the arms of God himself, who's delighting in you. How does that happen? How do we become that? How do we receive him? Again, it's Christmas is the answer, is the solution. It's the power that Christmas has because what happened at Christmas? I mean, how do we become a child of God? At Christmas, God became a child. Isaiah chapter nine, behold, a child is born. To us, a son is given. Christmas means, how do I begin to give up control of my life and to trust in God? God gave up absolute control. He became a little infant wearing whatever the first century, century equivalent of a diaper is. Can I just speak very directly? God, the Christ child, wasn't even in control of his own bowels. Can you imagine knowing everything you know just as a mere human being and having to become a baby all over again? 
This is the infinite, almighty, all-knowing creator God of all things. There's not a molecule in existence anywhere in the ever-expanding universe that's outside. There's not a maverick molecule outside of his sovereign kingly control. And he's wearing a diaper. He became a human being, made flesh. That means made vulnerable, made killable, so that you can become vulnerable before him. And he went from the wood of the manger to the wood of the cross, from the swaddling cloths to the iron nails for you. He said, he handed himself over to the darkness. Can you hand yourself over to him to trust? Whether you are an atheist here today or known Jesus all of your life. And we close with this. Again, Amelia, when she was one and a half, two years old, just kind of toddling around, just beginning to walk, we were in our bedroom up in our, our house, in, in, in our bedroom, and I was sitting on the floor and Amelia was kind of a couple of feet away from me and I kind of looked away for a little bit and the next thing I looked, she had a metal key in her little toddler hands and she was just about to insert the key into the electrical outlet. I mean, it was right there and I'm a couple, of, and all, all I can do is I have to kind of throw my body over and I say, no, Amelia, and smack her on her little hand to knock the key out of her hand. And when I did that, she looked at me with these eyes, huge eyes, the tears starting to form, and she was so hurt and afraid, and it was a delayed, you know, one, 1,000, two, 1,000, three, here it comes, and it was a cry that was so sad and scared and hurt and all she knew in that moment was that her daddy had hurt her she didn't understand about electricity and wiring and how metal is a conductor of electricity and what might happen to her if she did that she couldn't have conceived of that at all all she knew was that her daddy had hurt her and of course I was not hurting her I was saving And God would say to you, dear child, there might be times in your life, in the past, the future, or right now, that you think, I'm hurting you. I'm not hurting you. You can't see it. You can't understand. But I'm saving you. And to believe that in the darkness of this world, to overcome the darkness that is within us, there is a light which shines in the darkness. A light that began to shine on that first Christmas day 2,000 years ago. From the manger to the cross for you. To Christ alone be all the glory. Amen.